grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All over the New Testament are a pair of four-letter words. Not those kind of four-letter words. Four-letter words that both start with the letter L. And both of these words demand definition, especially in our time and place. The first of those four-letter words is love. And in our contemporary culture, when we talk about love, people tend to think of it simply in terms of a fleeting feeling. Love is warm fuzzies. Love is snowflakes and kittens. And look, I love snowflakes. Not so crazy about kittens. But love, in the biblical viewpoint, can only be understood and defined by the sacrificial servant love of our Lord Jesus. If you want to understand what it means to love, don't look to your belly. Look to the cross. Don't look to your heart and those fleeting feelings. Look to the Lord who laid down his life for the sake of you and me. That's what love means. But the four-letter word that I want to talk about this morning and focus on is the other one, the word Lord. Now, Lord is perhaps the most common uh, title that's given to Jesus in the New Testament. He's constantly called the Lord Jesus. And in fact, among early Christians, this was their basic confession of faith. Kurios Jesus, Lord Jesus. Jesus is Lord. You say, well, what does it mean for him to be Lord? At the most basic level, it's identifying him with the God of Israel, with the God and Father, the one who has made all things. To call Jesus Lord is an unequivocal exclamation, acclamation of his divinity, that he is truly the Son of God. But I want to dig down a little bit deeper even to see what does it mean, what does it mean for you and me that he is Lord. And if we want to arrive at a good definition of that word, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a better story that defines it than the one that we read just a moment ago from the Gospel of Mark. Jesus stilling the storm with a word, peace, be still. And there was a great calm. Here in this passage, we see what it means for Jesus to be Lord. I want to give you just a a simple definition. This isn't the only way that we could define it, but I want to give you a, a simple definition that stems especially from this story. For Jesus to be Lord means that he is the capable and caring king of all creation. That Jesus is Lord means that he is the capable and caring king of all creation. And as we dig deeper into the the story, I want to show us how there's at least three ways that we see this lordship of Jesus reflected in the story. How we see that he is the king over all creation. And not only that, but what that means for you and me. So three ways that we see this in the story. The first of them is kind of counterintuitive. You wouldn't think that this reflects the lordship of Jesus. But that is that Jesus in the boat is sleeping. (laughs) <laughs> say, ah, I would think that would be the opposite, that this would show that Jesus is not Lord, that he, he needs, he needs a, a nap in the boat, that while the rest of them, they're straining at the oars, and where's Jesus? <sighs> Catching some Z's, really? But when we look more deeply into the scriptures, we see the fact that Jesus is sleeping is reflective of his lordship. Well, how is that? In the Bible, to be at sleep is to be in a position of repose of peaceful trust in God the Father. For instance, in in Psalm 4, it says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. 
For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Many of us learn that prayer when we would go to bed. And you can say it with me now if you like. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. You guys know it, see? What that prayer is leading us into is a posture of faith that simply rests in the Lord. Now, none of us do that perfectly. We're constantly fretting and flailing about. We have a hard time sleeping sometimes because we're, we're filled with anxiety and worry, all of those things that are keeping us up at night. But for Jesus, even in the midst of that storm, he's passed out of sleep because he has that perfect trust in the Father. In looking at that, we see Jesus is Lord. He is in command and control, even in spite of all of those circumstances. Now, the second way that this story reflects Jesus as Lord is the most obvious way. The fact that he is able to have control over creation, especially in the seas. And I think this is still today, but especially in the ancient world, there was this sense that the seas were the most unruly part of all creation. And you just imagine for these disciples, as, if they, were, as they were out there, many of you folks, I know you've got boats, you go out on boats out here on Lake Michigan. Maybe you've been out on a boat in the midst of when things are getting a little bit hairy. Is that not the most frightening thing in the world? Now imagine this. You're in just like a rowboat, basically. Okay, they were a little bit bigger than that, but it's more or less a rowboat. It's about four feet high, and you are out, and it's dark. It's pitch black because you're on the seas. It's the middle of the night. You can't see anything. You're in this little boat, and now you're being tossed back and forth. Of course you're freaking out, right? Water's already coming into the boat, and Jesus is able to, after, you know, gets the crusties out of his eyes, oh, what's up, guys? Oh, okay. Peace! Be still. And just like that, it's still. And not only that, Mark tells us that Jesus rebuked the wind and waves. Now, what sort of things do you rebuke? I rebuke my puppy when he is doing what he tends to do inside our house, too often, still. You rebuke the car that's coming at you when you're trying to walk across the, the, you know, the crosswalk. You rebuke, in other words, things that you view as being lower than you that you want to exert some kind of control or authority over. Now, as much as we might like to rebuke the seas when you find yourself in that, that vulnerable, frightening spot for any of us, to rebuke them would not avail to anything but Jesus as Lord the king over all creation, the one that Job, that we heard uh, his, whose voice reflected in that reading from Job, who shuts in the sea with its doors, who says, thus far you shall come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Here is Jesus, the one who controls all things. Here is the Lord, the king of creation. But the third way, the third way that we see Jesus' lordship here is how he then responds to the disciples. So he calms the sea, he turns to the disciples, and he says to them, guys, why are you so afraid? And in fact, the word is much stronger than that. It'd probably be better translated, why are you being cowards? Why are you being so cowardly? In Jesus' response, both the content and the context of this response we see another way that he is Lord. And here's what I mean by that. Go back to that Job reading that we heard. 
And what we have, if you're not familiar with the story of Job, the story of Job is Job goes through this incredibly difficult series of circumstances. He loses his kids, he loses his livelihood, he loses his animals, he, he loses practically everything. And he's struggling, wrestling with this, all of this suffering, all this pain that he's enduring. And he's coming before the Lord and wondering, Lord, what have I done here? Why is this happening to me? See, And God speaks to him out of the whirlwind, it says. And how does God speak to him? In what form does he talk to him? Questions. Questions. Where were you, Job? He doesn't give him a clear answer. But instead, with that series of questions, he kind of puts Job back in his place. Reminds him, hey, wait a second, Job. I am the one who is the king of all creation. You're not the one who questions me. I question you, see. Jesus, when he speaks to the disciples, what's the first thing out of his mouth? It's a question. We hear resonances and echoes of that God of Job. Why are you so cowardly? But not only that, and Mark here helps us to, to clue into this. See, the same word that's used in Job 38 to describe that whirlwind, it's the, in the Greek Old Testament, it's the word lilops. That same word is what's used to describe the awful storm that the disciples are enduring out there. The wind and the waves, it was a whirlwind. And here, as Jesus speaks that peace out of the whirlwind and causes the storm to be still, we see, as the disciples ask, who then is this? This is the capable and caring king of all creation. This is the Lord. That's who Jesus is. And it couldn't be clearer from that story. But what difference does that make in our lives today? What does that mean for us? And I want to say that there is an, an exhortation, that there's an apologetic, and that there's consolation in this story and in the fact that our Lord Jesus is Lord. First of all, as an exhortation for you and me, and I'll be brief on this, but we need to hear what Jesus says to the disciples. We need to hear it as well. That the fact when he calls them to account, he says, why are you being so cowardly? Now, like we said, it would seem to me that they have good reason to be afraid. Am I right? I mean, I think that's a legitimate thing. It's not like, you know, they had a daddy long legs crawling up their arm and Peter's like, oh, Jesus, save us, don't you care? They're about to get turned over in the middle of the sea. It's going to be terrible. It's a, a legitimate reason for fear. But Jesus says, if you recognize, guys, that I am Lord, if you believe that I am who I say I am, then why are you still racked with fear in the midst of it? It's an exhortation for you and me in the midst of the things that are causing you distress, anxiety, consternation, to look to the Lord, to repent of our fearfulness, our anxiety, and to say, Lord, I want to believe you are who you say you are and to trust in you in the midst of my own storms. So it's an exhortation. There's also an apologetic bent to this. Now, apologetics is kind of a technical term we talk about in theology. Apologetics are the, is the defense of the faith. So not like apologizing for the faith. I'm so sorry, I'm a Christian. Jesus can just be so crazy sometimes. I'm really sorry about that. No, that's not what apologetics is. It comes from the Greek root, which means to make a defense. And here in this story, we have a really compelling defense for that most ancient question of all, the one that Job wrestled with as well, this problem of pain and suffering in the world. 
And the problem is usually laid out this way. If God were all-powerful, and if he were all-caring, then there would be no suffering and pain in the world. There is pain and suffering in the world. We can clearly see it. So either God must not be all-powerful, in which case he's just he's weak, he's, you know, he couldn't be divine. Or he's not all-caring, in which case he's malevolent. We don't really care. We, we wouldn't want to love or serve such a God. In either case, he must not exist. That's the way that the argument tends to go. That if God is either pitiless or powerless, then he must be pretend. How do we see this responded to with this, with this story here? Well, we see in our Lord Jesus that, yes, he is the all-powerful king of creation, that he is capable, that he is able to say simply with a word, peace, be still. This is the guy who is in charge, okay? We can look to him and recognize, yeah, he is able to, to control the outcome of this world. Well, then does he also care? Yeah, this was the concern of the disciples. Don't you care that we're perishing? Jesus does care. He gets up out of a really good nap and says, peace, be still. He is both caring and capable. He is both all-powerful and all-compassionate. But that still doesn't totally answer it, does it? Because it leaves us in this place like, okay, all right. So Jesus does care. He can do it. So why doesn't he do something about it? Why is there still injustice and suffering in the world? In my life, Lord, why don't you do something about it? And here's where every preacher who's worth his weight in salt has to come to the end of the line and say, we don't know. We don't know. What I'd love to do is to stand up before you and give just an airtight explanation for why every single thing happens and look, this is why, this is why not. Many times those answers come back to you and the things that you've done or failed to do, God's just punishing you, but we know that that's not the case. And C.S. Lewis, I think, summed it up best, the great Christian apologist, defender of the faith, when he said, look, how is it that God can bear all of the pain and suffering and sorrow in this world? How can God bear it? And the answer, he did. He did. When our Lord Jesus went to the cross, see, he took all of the world's brokenness onto himself and dealt with it once and for all. Now hear me, that doesn't mean that in this life then we're able to answer every question, but it does mean that we have the ultimate answer in our Lord Jesus, in his death and in his resurrection, that on the cross of Calvary, God spoke out of the ultimate whirlwind and said, it is finished. You are mine. Nothing in all creation is able to separate you from my love. None of the wind and waves, none of the storms that you might experience. Child, I'm not always going to tell you exactly why it happens, but you can know that in the midst of it all that I am good, that I love you, that I am here for you, so that you would be able to say into the deepest depths of your soul, even when you cannot understand, Lord, it is well. It's well. And this is the consolation for you and me. I'll tell you a story. Some of you know it. 
about a guy by the name of Horatio Spafford. Horatio Spafford was a, an attorney in Chicago in the late 19th century, and it was right after the Chicago fire that just wiped out the city, and he lost his livelihood. The city was a mess. He was going through some awful times, and if that weren't bad enough, he lost his only son, four-year-old son, to scarlet fever. So he had gone through a couple of years, just devastating years that were just wearing him down. Now, Mr. Spafford, he was a devoted, devout Christian. He loved the Lord, but he was struggling. Lord, what's happening here? Why am I going through all of this? And he thought, you know what? We just need a vacation, right? He had four other daughters and his wife. He thought, we just need to get away for a while. And so they were going to take a boat from uh, Chicago, go over to Europe, and just get some time away, try to clear their heads, reconnect with the Savior. Well, it turns out that Mr. Spafford had to get called back for some business before he could join his family over in Europe. So he was going to tie up some loose ends and then go with them. But he went to New York and joined them at the port, saw them onto the ship, and bid them adieu. And on the way, an awful storm came up, and the ship was sunk. 226 lives were lost, including all four of his daughters. His wife survived. She telegraphed a, a letter back to him uh, um, and simply said two words, saved alone. And so as soon as he gets that message, his wife who had made it eventually to the other side, she was in uh, Cardiff, Wales. He immediately gets on the first uh, boat that he can to go over to meet with his wife. And while he does, he's just, he's, he's wrestling. He's so racked with, with sorrow and uncertainty and questioning. But as he is, he's standing out on the, the bow of the ship. He's looking over at the waters. And the captain comes and takes him aside in the midst of the journey. He says, Mr. Spafford, we're going over the spot right about here where the ship went down. And as he was there, looking out at the seas and all the roiling of the waves, suddenly he was overwhelmed by this sense of peace and began writing a poem, which you and I know as the hymn, When Peace Like a River. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Notice he didn't say, it is well when times are good. But when times are bad, Lord, where are you? I couldn't care less about you. The promise that you and I have in this life is not that it's always going to be calm seas. The promise that you and I have is much stronger and more sure. It is that come what may, you're in the boat with Jesus. And Jesus is Lord the capable and caring king of all creation. And because you belong to Jesus, and because he is with you always, come what may, you can ever and always say to the deepest depths of your being, Lord, it is well. It is well.
May the peace of God that surpasses all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. We stand for prayer.